0: Thank you for listening to this talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to our Tuesday lunchtime talk, the penultimate talk of the year, I believe. Is that right? I think we've got one more after this week, maybe two, one more until January. Either way, we don't stop with our Tuesday talks. As you know, they run all year, the only day we close the doors at the Art Gallery of South Australia is Christmas Day. My name's Lisa Slade and I'm the Assistant Director here at the Gallery and I'd like to kick off by acknowledging that we meet on Ghana country. It's easy in the company of such incredible works in Tarnandee to be constantly reminded and to have the message reinforced that we are of course on Aboriginal land. I'm joined by the inimitable Karina Morgan and I love this bit where she has to talk about herself signing. She brings out the naughty one in me because I keep wanting to give her things to sign so I can just see if she can actually sign them. And she can. Now, <laughs> now whilst this is a, at once a delightful space to be talking in, it's, uh, it's also slightly tricky. So my apologies if uh, you have trouble perhaps seeing me or you're um, I'm obscured by the tatini. I really don't mind because this space is all about the tatini. I'm gonna talk to you for about 25 minutes about the work that we are sitting in the company of, and then I'm very happy to take questions or comments from you. When we sit down to curate the talks program, and I do so with Bernadette Clavins, who's over here looking after today from our public programs team, and with our curatorial team, We have a bit of a discussion around the right things to talk about at the right time of the year and the right people to do the talking, as you can well imagine. It's actually an incredibly complex process. And I had the great honor just three weeks before we opened Tarnandi in October of traveling for the first time to the Tiwi Islands. Has anyone in the room been to the Tiwi Islands? Great, a couple of you, wonderful. So the Tiwi Islands are north of Darwin, the Tiwi Islands are in fact just north of Darwin and the Tiwi are 80 kilometres north of Darwin and they are home to 2,600 people. Of course, the Tiwi Islands are constituted primarily, there is lots of smaller islands, but they're constituted primarily of the Bathurst and Melville Islands, with the Melville Island being much larger than the Bathurst Island. In fact, Melville Island is the second largest island in Australia, after Tasmania, of course. So sometimes I think it's easy to imagine in Australia when you start to use the word island that you're talking about a concise or small island in the middle of the ocean. In the case of the Tiwi Islands, we're talking about these two relatively large islands that interconnect or or are connected by a strait of water called the Apsley Strait. And that's a very strong tidal zone, intertidal zone, that runs between the two islands. Tiwi people, see themselves and in, and indeed are very distinct from mainlanders. A little bit like Tasmanians in that sense too. <laughs> they are emphatic that they are in fact Tiwi and not to be homogenised with other Arnhem Landers perhaps or more broadly other Aboriginal Australians. I think we've learnt, thankfully, that there is no such thing <laughs> as a single Aboriginal Australian, that we have just as large as this country is, we have a similar proliferation of Aboriginal cultures. And the Tiwi embody that. And I wanted to kick off by reading something to you which is rather cheeky and I think provides great context for understanding the Tiwi way of being, the Tiwi ontology. This is a statement that was made quite recently by Pedro Wanameri. and Pedro's work is here in the exhibition. It's just at the back here. Pedro is a senior lawman, a senior Tiwi lawman, and he's based at Gillamara in Milikapiti, but I'll talk to you all about Gillamara and Milikapiti in a minute. I wanted to read this first. Apologies for my um, station here as well. I feel like I'm defiling the presence of these incredible tatini, but trust me, they'll help me do my job. We Tiwi people have to keep our culture alive. Of course, if the government says to me, you're Australian, then I would say to them, yes, we're Australian, but also we are one Aboriginal people that belongs to an island and it's Tiwi. Tiwi have strong feelings of who we are and where we belong. When I say keeping our culture alive, it's about attending ceremonies. The Pukamani ceremony, knowing the dance and knowing all of the songs. The art from long time ago and today, we are still seeing as Tiwi art. The word Tiwi, roughly translates as, we the people. Interestingly, that word, the idea of we the people is adopted as a key term of defining Aboriginal people all over the continent. If you are familiar with the Anangu, Pidinjada, Yankanjada lands, you'll know that the word Anangu means we the people, (laughs) the people of the Pidinjara and Yankanjada lands. So similarly, Tiwi means us and we belong here. The Tiwi's distinctive, almost defiant sense of belonging is illustrated in the history of the Tiwi Islands. Whilst I imagine many of you are familiar with the centuries of trade that brought boogies and Macassan seafarers to Northern Australia, to the Kimberley and all the way across to Arnhem Land, The Tiwi Islands, whilst the site of some visits, were infrequently visited and influenced. That is because of the kind of virulent self-protection that the Tiwi people exercised. So hostile, to quote an anthropologist, were they in response to outsiders that the incursions onto their country were not nearly as prolific as the incursions onto the neighbouring islands, Grote Island, for instance, or certainly onto the parts into the parts of Arnhem Land that you're all familiar with, many of which, of course, are uh, celebrated in this exhibition. So there were trepangers, as they're known. There were Macassan and Boogies seafarers who made their way, and the dugout canoe makes its way into Tiwi world being and Tiwi reality, the liba liba or Liva Liva comes via Indonesia into the Tiwi world but not really in any way until the late 19th and the early 20th century. Interestingly enough it was really as early as 1904 that the South Australian government put an end to the Macassan visits, visits that Sally May at the Australian National University cites as happening between the 12th century and the very early 20th century, so for 800 years. The Dutch, in the 17th century, made two visits that we're aware of to the Tiwi Islands, and the British, for a period of five years, between 1825, four years, 1825 and 1829, attempted a settlement. But once again, so hostile, quote unquote, were the conditions that they recoiled. It wasn't for another almost 100 years, it wasn't until 1911, that the mission culture is established on Bathurst Island. So we've got this very interesting history of both isolation and impact arguably more isolation than impact, which is a really interesting foil to the other cultures that we were just describing, particularly Yungul culture, which is always has incorporated into its language outside of culture. While we're talking about language, Tiwi, if you've, if you've just even had a chance to glance at the wall label, you'll be, you'll be startled, delighted perhaps, by the specificity and peculiarity, perhaps, of Tiwi language. Tiwi language looks very different to other top-end languages. Now, of course, there's a proliferation of languages, Aboriginal languages, across Northern Australia. Many of those languages share, if even a kind of visual sim- similarity. Tiwi is absolutely distinctive. In fact, to look at it, it looks more like a Tamil language, to be honest, than it does a northern Australian language in that sense. So it's a very, very distinctive language. And I think that, once again, underscores this idea of a distinctive culture. That's a nice segue to talking about the art, because that's why we're, all, why we're all here, of course. We are in the company of a grove of Titini. Tutini. T u t i n i. You'll see different spellings. You'll see different spellings constantly in the orthography or the writing of language in the context of Aboriginal art. Just relax, is my advice. That writing, that orthography is entirely a white fella, Western way of making sense of things. And linguists change their mind as frequently as they change their underwear, it seems. So, tatini have been, tatini have been, turtini have been many different things, but they remain the objects that we are experiencing here. Ancestral and contemporary at once. These objects are so distinctly Tiwi because they are distinctly different to the northern mainland objects. The objects or the equivalent objects, for want of a better way of expressing them, are the ladakich and the Lodokon, which are the hollow log coffins that you'll see downstairs in the exhibition. The word lorikon is used in Western Central Arnhem Land and Ladder Kitchen Eastern Arnhem Land. Both these objects and those objects are connected with the idea of mortuary ceremonies, but they're very, very different and very distinctive. These objects are not, they are not, ossuaries. They are not containers for remains, the hollow log of the latakich and the loricon, on the other hand, serve that traditional purpose. The hollow log of the latakich and the loricon are made from eucalyptus tetradonta, which is a stringy bark, which is delicious to termites, which means that if you place a felled log over a termite mound, the termites will do the good work for you in hollowing out that piece of timber, which then, of course, makes it the most perfect ossuary into which the human remains are placed after cremation what we're experiencing here is very different and yet perhaps visually quite similar at first glance these tatini are made from a hardwood that is so hard that it is known commonly as ironwood and I've brought a little piece of it along for you and I think you'll be quite surprised by the weight of even this small piece of the tree. Now, for, for the botanists in the room, the botanical name is Erythrophyllum chloriostachis. Erythrophyllum chloriostachis. So it's not... Yeah, Karina, that was a good one. Erythrophyllum Chloriostacus. She's just nodding. Scientific. <laughs> Can you show us ironwood? Oh, did you? Yeah. Ironwood. Um, Erythrophyllum chloriostacus, is clearly not a eucalypt. That's interesting in itself. Although, as you all know, not all gum trees are eucalypts. I'm going to pass this around. Feel free to sniff it, tap it, whatever you need to. This is the timber from which all of these tatini have been made. All of these tatini have been made in the last 12 months for this exhibition. Tatini have a history which predates, of course, the Dutch 17th century. Feel free to come in, folks, the Dutch 17th century incursions, the Macassan incursions. For the Tiwi, they have a beautiful word. It's called Balingari. Palingari is deep time. It's the idea of deep time. And in the Palingari, in deep time, the Tiwi people were immortal. The creation story for the Tiwi is a very simple, very beautiful story. I'd like to preface my telling of it by saying that there are many different versions of this story and I am choosing Pedro Wanamera's Definition of this story. If you get hold of Jennifer Isaac's book, which is the publication here on Tiwi Art, which is very recent, if you get hold of the 1958 book made by C.P. Mountford, Charles Mountford, uh, on Tiwi Art, or the Tiwi people, you'll find different versions of this story. I'm giving you just one version. And I'm going to give you the one version that is spoken to in one of these works of art. Now, after my talk, you to—you may want to get up. If you don't have a good view of this particular tatini, feel free after my talk to have a good look at it. I feel like I'm a bit echoey, but you can all hear me, can't you? Is it okay? Or is it too echoey? Hands up if you're having trouble. Okay, that's good. Great. This idea of abstraction and figuration is a really, I find, such a delicious conundrum. Western... People talk about art being abstract or art being figurative or realistic all the time. And to be honest, the sliding scale between abstraction and figuration doesn't really fit, doesn't really belong beyond the Western canon, doesn't make a lot of sense beyond the Western canon. And this installation of Titini is a good example. Because where you may see objects that are so-called abstract, Tiwi people will see representational objects. They will see something that they can read, something which may not be legible culturally to you, may indeed be culturally legible to them. There are some, in our terms, figurative works, many of which represent the bird, and it's the various variants of the seagull and also the curlew, for a reason that I'll soon make clear, that populate... Tiwi to Tini I can't decide which bit of the story I want to tell first but I think I'm just going to jump straight in and interrupt me I have a terrible habit of missing the obvious bits of a tale sometimes so I want to go back to this idea of deep time I want to go back to this notion that I mentioned before of Palingari of long time ago a long time ago the Tiwi people were, were immortal they lived forever the Tiwi, Adam, and Eve are Purukkali, actually it's Purukkapali, I always get those two things mixed up, it's Purukapali. I, I, I remember that it's wrong because the Kali is an Indian goddess as many of you would know and it's definitely not Kali, it's Pali, so it's Purukkapali and Purukkapali is the male ancestor and he's represented here. Now, in this beautiful kind of Janus-faced moment, you know, Janus is the god of doorways, looking forward, looking back. On the other side of Purukapali, we have Wayai, Wayai, and Wayai is Purukapali's wife. Wayai fell in love in this iteration of the story with the brother Of Purukapali and she left her son Jinani, her son Jinani under the shade of a tree and went off to make love to her lover, the brother of her husband. They were having such a good time that what was shade turned into deadly exposed sunlight and the baby Jinani Perished. Such was that moment. Represents the beginning of mortality, and the beginning of human existence as we know it today. For the Tiwi, the baby, the dead baby, was collected. Jinani was collected by Purukupali, and the first mortuary ceremony, the first. Pukamani ceremony was performed. Purukapali carried the baby into the water, into the coral and drowned at sea following the ceremony. His wife turned in to the grieving curlew and the sound of the curlew is the sound of her wailing, the sound of her loss, the sound of her grief. The um, philandering brother turned into the moon, Japara. So whenever we see the full moon, we are reminded of the beginning of life, but also, of course, the beginning of death. That idea of the two sides, life and death, being linked, of course, is is inherently the story behind these incredible tatini. Today, these tatini appear, as they do here for you today, as contemporary art manifestations of deep culture and deep time, but they also still today, on both the Bathurst and the Melville Island, stand as grave markers. I mentioned 1911 a moment ago. In 1911, the missionaries rocked up to Bathurst Island, and uh, with that, of course, they introduced Catholicism Catholicism is alive and well in the Tiwi Islands. I was about to say it has not diminished Tiwi culture, but I don't think I can make that statement. So what I would like to say is that it sits alongside traditional Tiwi belief. So an incredibly syncretic belief where when you come across a grave site, you will see the uncanny site of a tatini accompanied by a white Christian cross. Interestingly, and perhaps the uh, agnostic in me kind of enjoyed this, the white Christian cross has often been devoured by termites, (laughs) reclaimed by termites, whilst the tatini stands proud. But you will see both. You will see both in the formal graveyards, because there are formal graveyards, but also within the landscape. And to come across a tatini in the landscape is an astonishing, an astonishing apparition. I saw a tatini that was about four metres tall and I was struck by its scale and then I was told it was the tatini made for one of the Cantilla brothers who was the Tiwi Island's greatest football export and hence he ended up with the tallest tatini. Now in presenting this selection of tatini to you, the incredible work that sits behind these is almost... Made rendered invisible by the elegance of these objects. So, what I'm gonna do now with your permission, now that I've given you the creation story, made here on two sides facing two ways of the past and the future for Tiwi people, is I'm gonna introduce you to the the three art centres. Now, for the two of you who have been to the Tiwi Islands, did you have the opportunity to visit an art centre? Yes, where did you go, Helen? Oh yeah, yep, great. So Bima named after YI's transforming self. YI becomes Bima, the curlew, after her son's death. See how everything connects back to that one story? So I'm going to introduce you to the three art centres because the magic that Nikki Cumston has achieved throughout... Tarnandi itself is kind of underscored in this very one project alone, because she's brought three art centres that have really ocup- that really occupy quite diverse sites across the two islands together, and in doing so, we get to see just in this one showing the diversity of tatini making and mark making. How's the timber going? Is it coming around? Are you astounded by its? Oh, it's made its way already. Fabulous. So it's very beautiful, isn't it? That dark red, I don't know if you had a chance to smell it, it smells pretty fantastic and it's incredibly dense. It traditionally was obviously carved with tools made from the earth. These days you'll be pleased to know that power tools are well in use. Imagine carving through that timber... We do have objects made in both ironwood and bloodwood in our collection that have been made prior to the use of power tools. The three arts, oh, and of course, after they've been carved, you'll see something quite distinctive, which are these windows, for want of a better word, through the objects. These enable a safe passage of the spirit. This is so the spirit can escape through the windows. And sometimes, in the case here, the window's been made by the bird's legs, but they enable safe Pukamani. The word Pukamani, so these are called tatini because they're the objects. The word Pukamani describes the ceremony. People often talk about these as Pukamani poles. We may have even done that. They're the poles for the Pukamani ceremony. And the word Pukamani is really interesting because it's, it's both a noun and a verb. You talk about being in Pukamani or doing Pukamani as a kind of ritual. So Pukamani becomes a thing that you actually behave and do, that you are in mourning, but also it becomes a ceremony in itself. So what do we got? We've got the three art centres. And I can't decide which one to introduce first. Well, in fact, I'll go back to Mario's work. That's probably the most useful way of doing it. Mario works at Munupi Arts and Culture, Monipi started off as BeamAware and started off as a ceramics uh, ceramics studio. And it's in a place that Whitefellas called Garden Point and that the Tiwi called Pirilangimbi. Not Millangimbi, but Pirlangimbi. And Piralangimbi is a very beautiful spot, isn't it, Helen? Gorgeous spot, right on the water. And it's a spot... Where artists have been working in ceramics and timber, really s- since let me check my let me check my date, shall I just make sure I get this right for you, but w- working there for decades. At least in 1990, the Women's Centre and the Pottery Centre started. In 1990, these days it's called Munupi, M-U-N-U-P-I, Munupi, and I was there in uh, as I said a couple of months ago, and. At the same time that I was there, the new art centre was opened, was officially launched. And the new art centre, I think this speaks Tiwi, this this example, this story that I'm going to tell you speaks volumes about Tiwi identity. Because the new art centre was dedicated to Natalie Pulentilera. And Natalie had died a year ago to the day. Tiwi mourn death in a very precise way. You'll know that a lot of cultures enter into a mourning period or a sorry period that might be a little bit flexible. For the Tiwi, it's to the day. It was a year to the day that Natalie had passed away. She'd passed away unexpectedly. She went to Darwin for a fairly kind of routine operation. She was in her early early 40s and she never came home. She was one of Maunapee's most successful artists and she never came home. What the community did as a tribute to her was to take her design, and I'm going to throw another Tiwi word your way, the word for design is Gilamara, to take her Gilamara, to take one of her paintings, and to make it into a building. Tiwi came up with the idea. They gave the idea to a wonderful young architect called Dave Krausnitz, and Dave made the building. Hand cutting metal so it looked like Tiwi design or Gilamara, Natalie's Gilamara, and wrapping it around the art centre. That's Munapi, and that is where Mario, who made both this work and this work here, lives and works today, as well as many of the other artists. Gilamara is the second art centre, probably the more prominent of the two, to be honest on Melville Island, and Gillamara was established in 1989. So it's the earliest official art centre. A lot of activity happened across Australia in the 1990s around art centres, with Munapi happening in the early 90s, Gillamara just before uh, the 1990s. And Gillamara is the place that uh, has introduced the world to Kitty Cantilla, who many of you would have heard of. Her, her traditional name is Kitty Cantilla. Is just let me think of it. It's Kutu Wilumi Putawampatu. Kutu is her traditional name. Became known as Kitty Cantilla. She's the matriarch of the football family, and Kitty Cantilla became very celebrated and is represented in all major collections, including our own. Jilamara, meaning design, is the place that artists. It has a museum, wonderful museum, but it's also the place where artists gather daily as they do at Maunape to make work. And there are several works, many works here from Gillamara. This is Janice Murray's work here from Gillamara. This is Timothy Cook's work here from Gillamara. And in just looking at these two tatini, you'll probably notice a very strong use of the kind of rhythm of the tree, if you like. Can you see that? See the way the artist is not just relying upon the straight form of the plant, but in, in, indeed is playing to the form of the tree. If you look at Janice's work, Mr. Cook's work, and then Pedro's work over here that I mentioned before, also from Gilimara, you'll see these very distinct markings, these very distinct Gilamara. Now that Gilimara comes from body painting using precisely the same materials. And the materials are, of course, the white pigment, which is found around many of the cliffs of the Tiwi Islands, beautiful white cliffs, the yellow ochre, which is burnt to make the red ochre, and the black colour, which is, of course, charcoal. So you'll see those four colours run through like a kind of language through Tiwi art and other Aboriginal art. The other thing you'll notice specifically in the work of Janice and in the work of Pod, uh, Pedro Wanamera, is the use of what's called a puerta, and it's spelt P W O J A. Once again, the linguists aren't very helpful, it doesn't really help us say it. I believe you say it, puerta, and the puerta is made from guess what? Ironwood, and it's a carved. It's a comb that's been carved from the ironwood that enables one to apply the ochre with the same repeated pattern. So imagine a hair comb, one of those very short, tined hair combs. You dip the porta into the ochre, into the pigment, and then you rock the porta across the surface. And that repetition of the porta gives you this beautiful rhythm. If you feel like you need a little bit of homework, when I've stopped talking, which I promise will be soon, you can go around and see if you can identify where the porta has been used. It's hard to tell sometimes, because some artists love to kind of imitate the mark by hand, but you'll certainly see here in Janice's work and in Pedro's that repetition of the porta. So I've introduced you to the two Melville Island art centres, Gillamara, and Munipi, Jilamara and Munipi. The third and the oldest, in effect, is the art centre, which is called Nana Wada Jiri. Three words. Nana Wada Jiri, which become one word, and it means helping each other, to give each other a hand, to help each other out. And if you go home and Google Tiwi art, one of the first images that will pop up will be what I like to describe as the Sistine Chapel, the Sistine Chapel ceiling of the Aboriginal art world. And it is the most incredible concave ceiling of Nattawata which has been hand painted by Tiwi artists from both the Bathurst and the Melville Islands. The ceiling was made, or the structure was made by a Sydney architect called Peter Myers, in the 1980s, and it was made initially as a Tiwi keeping place, as a type of Tiwi museum. It was open-sided with this beautiful ceiling, an extreme version of what we're sitting under today. Myers designed it to imitate the curve of a bark shelter, but it also kind of looks a bit like an elegant Nissan hut, yeah? And in the 1990s, that keeping place the objects were removed and taken to various museums and that keeping place became the art centre that we know today as Nattawatta It's been run by the same couple since then who also have a home in Adelaide and they come home every now and then. They're now in their, they're probably in their 70s, I think. nattawatta helping each other initially began as a place where disabled artists would work and it's still very much a, a very open, welcoming place for artists of all abilities. What I think is so interesting about this display is that the Natawata works are incredibly distinctive and there are only two of them. This is one of them. Can someone guess where the other one is based on this physical form? You got it, well done. It's like playing that um, puzzle, same but different or whatever it is, isn't it? This is the other work from Natawata so you see that very distinctive style. Already we start to see these beautiful kind of contrapposto forms from Gilamara, these very sculptural forms, this kind of form upon form that's being carved with inc- extraordinary diligence. It's much harder. In this timber, it's very, very difficult, as I'm sure you can imagine, to create this softened oval form. And then we have the forms from... Munipi, which are on the whole kind of more diverse, this work here uh, of Mario's actually riffs on traditional tatini such as the examples that were collected for the Art Gallery, commissioned in fact, for the Art Gallery of New South Wales in 1958. So Tony tuxon then Deputy Director, was working with the, um, uh, the physician Stuart Scugol and they travelled to Melville Island and commissioned a grove of 17 tatini that I think have rarely been off display at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. They've moved around a little bit but they've rarely been off display. So this continues that more traditional form. Interestingly 58 was when Tucson was there 54 was when C.P. Mountford was there on the back of his 48 expedition and he then published his book on Tiwi art in 58 in the same year. Since then there have been, particularly since the 90s as I said, incredible developments, support for Tiwi artists and within our own team, James Bennett was the art centre manager in the 1990s at Gillamara for a period of time. And many key art historians, curators and artists have spent time with that very, very distinct Tiwi culture. Worth noting before I finish that I haven't paid any attention thus far, but they're worth mentioning to these bark baskets. These bark baskets are called Tunga, so Tatini and Tunga, T-U-N-G-A, and these Tunga are painted up with ceremonial designs, with djilamara, and they are upturned in this case. They'd be filled, they're part of the mortuary ceremony, they'd be filled, and in this instance, they're upturned. And there are lots of photographs, particularly in C.P. Mountford's book, of this, what you can see here, which is an upturned tatini over, sorry, an upturned Tunga over the tatini. Very final word. It feels like they're waiting to be animated and if you're here on the opening weekend, you'll know that these objects are sentinels, they stand in for a dynamic and lively world of song and dance. Tiwi perform, it's a very, you you heard it in Pedro's words, performing is a really intrinsic part of Tiwi culture The body is painted with extraordinary attention to detail. Magpie goose feather pendants are worn around the neck. Armlets are made, incredibly intricate body adornment and, of course, gillamara all over the body. If you look at this floor, you can still see, I can at least, the traces of the red, can you see the red ochre here? Cleaners are not too happy, but it's okay, I don't mind. It's like the memory of the performance. The Red Ochre, because when the artists were here and 25 of them came, they performed this work in. They sang it in, they danced it in. I think it's probably, if it's not on our website already, it's going to be on our website soon. Does that, is that a fair enough thing to say, Bernadette, for the opening weekend performance? I'm sure. If you didn't have a chance to see it, check it out on the website. Thank you for your undivided attention. I hope I haven't hit you with too much. I would commend the Jennifer Isaacs book to you. The NGV, National Gallery of Victoria, are also working on a wonderful Tiwi survey exhibition. They've been collecting Tiwi art, as have we, for a very long time. We've got some wonderful historic works in our collection. We've got a deaf Tommy Mungatopi from 1968, so 50 years old now. Deaf Tommy Mungatopi paints the coral that... Puruca walked into the ocean, he walked into the coral reef with his dead son and Deaf Tommy paints that coral in this beautiful pattern. We have one of those works in the collection. I didn't even get to talk talk about the war because actually it was in World War II that Deaf Tommy lost his hearing and became Deaf Tommy because uh, there was a very strong presence of uh, the Japanese on the Tiwi Islands. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. <clears throat> Any final questions or comments? Oh, good question. Very good question, Rana. We have been fortunate with the support of Tanandi to hang on to a few of these Tatini, uh, and I'll point out which ones in a moment. Also, the ones that are not staying at the Art Gallery of South Australia will actually be going into other collections, both national and private collections. So um, we are acquiring, as you can well imagine, this work which will help us tell the story that I've just told you today. I forgot to point point out that the hair of Waiyai and Purukapali is um, coconut fibre up here. The sister work is going to the NGV. We are hanging on to this wonderful Timothy Cook and we have some Kulama. He's interested in Kulama. He's interested in the the sweet potato and also Japara, the moon. And you see that return time and time in his work. We are acquiring James Austo's work, which is here. And Murray-Jazette Austo was his grandmother, I think, certainly family member. And this is the Austo pattern that you see here. It's almost like an eye Now you're really testing me, Rana. We are acquiring this work from Narawadajiti and I'm pretty sure Aussie's work, which is this work here from Munapi. Yay. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Yes. Sorry, I forgot to throw the questions. Well, Well, I kind of did, but... I was lucky enough to work out on the islands in late 80s, early 90s, and from memory, I can't remember women doing tatani. And I think it's—is it a relatively new thing that women are now permission? Or it's a really interesting question because when Nikki came back and she was talking about this project, she said the women are going to be making tatini. And you know, I, the art historian in me, went, "Oh, it must be new for women to do that." However. Whilst I was at Gillamara in the museum, I found an entire grove of tatini made by this incredible woman in the 1970s and 80s. So I don't know how far back women tatini go. What's probably worth saying on the back of that point, though, is that the making of tatini for ceremonial purposes is all about your relationship to that person. Now, that's not the case with these, but, for instance, if these were funerary tatini, the reason that women would make them is because death involves everybody and that I would be painting for somebody in my kinship group. Does that make sense? It's highly ordained. It's not just like, hey, who wants to make the tatini? It's very specific as to who can make the tatini and who they make it for. So there certainly are generations of women tatini makers. I would be curious to know what the longer history is. But you know what? We don't know the names of those makers the Tatini that are from the very early 20th century, from 1903 and 1904, in the museum's collection around those dates, they were acquired without full attribution details. So we don't know if they were made by men or by women. But there certainly is a tradition of women making them. Great. Shout out to all of the team from Public Programs for making these Tuesday lunchtime talks happen. Thank you.